in connection with the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible? We have considered various objections against the truthfulness and consistency of the Bible somewhat at length. We are now in process of summing up these conclusions and we're remarking upon a tenth objection which relates to the way of salvation. It is affirmed by many that one act of faith in Christ results not only in the forgiveness of our past sins, but of our present and future sins, so that the future salvation of the believer is in no sense conditional, but that he is just as sure of being in heaven as though he were already there. But a great number of passages in the Bible confront this theory as they sound forth the most penetrating warnings that the future salvation of the true Christian is conditional. There is a grave danger that he may be overcome by temptations and veer back into the pathway of sin and be forever lost as he resists the recovering measures of the Holy Spirit. It is not that the grace of God is not sufficient to give glorious victory, for this is so stated. But it is that man still possesses his free will, which God cannot void without effacing the image of God within man's heart. If the true Christian abides happily in Christ, all is serene and victorious. But if he begins to look back, as Lot's wife did, to his old ways of sin and resists the operations of the Holy Spirit and the chastisements brought about to humble him and bring him back into a healthy spiritual state, he is liable to harden his heart to the point where he will do despite unto the Spirit of grace. This is the point of exhausting God's great patience and abounding mercy, and is what the Bible calls apostasy. There is every indication that some Bible characters who had a noble beginning trifled away God's mercy and went to their eternal doom. I was taught in my theological training and held for a few years thereafter the unconditionality of the future salvation of true Christians or the impossibility of apostasy to such. I can only testify for myself that more extensive reading of the New Testament in particular on this subject some years ago required a change of opinion on this matter. We have looked in vain for any clear exposition of what would be a very mysterious dealing, that the gospel promises not only the forgiveness of past sins, but of present and future sins. If such a thing is true, the Holy Spirit would certainly have caused the authors of the Bible, and particularly of the New Testament, to become very expressive and explain such a mystery. Certainly, our Lord Jesus was too meticulous and concerned to omit such an important matter. If any special meaning was intended to be attached to his words, that repentance and or unto remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, as recorded in Luke 24, 47. 
The Bible invites all men everywhere to seek the Lord in repentance of heart and be forgiven for all sins through faith in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for them. In the absence of mysterious explanations, the only natural interpretation of the plain and gracious promises of the gospel is that of the pardon of all our past sins, and that is certainly a very evident meaning. It is not recorded that anyone raised this mystical question. Forgiveness was to be as extensive as repentance. If we cannot now repent for future sins, not committed as yet, neither can we be forgiven for what does not in fact exist. What strange problems theological uh, thinkers have created by their restless urge to develop profound things. But in the absence of positive proof for these complications, certainly no one can raise any objection against the Bible insistence that without holiness no man shall see the Lord, and without continuing in holiness no man shall see the Lord either. So in the eleventh consideration, we came to various objections that have been raised against the truthfulness of the Bible in the matter of so-called mistakes and contradictions in historical accounts appearing in various parts of the Bible record. The importance of this objection was stressed because if the Bible cannot be shown to be truthful on details of history, neither can we depend upon it in its profound revelations. But we must realize that in approaching the Bible, we are not dealing with any ordinary book. We are dealing with a book whose authors claimed divine authority for what they wrote, with a book that has given dying grace to millions of earth's most valuable inhabitants, the world's most translated book, the bestseller, this should lead us to a reverential attitude in which approach many objections disappear. We saw that some so-called discrepancies arise because the objectors do not carefully read just what the Bible says. They base their objection on what they think the Bible says or seek to interpret a verse without considering carefully the context or the whole chapter or book in which the verse appears. By establishing the exact meaning of such passages, objection of this nature definitely disappears. Other problems spring up because of our lack of knowledge of many facts of history that were known to Bible writers, carried along by oral tradition. Our ignorance of many such matters should not lead us to hasty conclusions. If Paul, for example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, quoted words as spoken by Jesus that are nowhere else given, we have no right to raise an objection since they may have come down to him as oral tradition. Some find fault with the Bible because they fail to understand the nature of true divine inspiration and of the Bible as a whole. Inspiration guarantees the truthfulness of the record, but does not guarantee that everything that is written in the Bible is true. To judge truth, 
we must consider who has uttered a given saying. The sayings of evil men are recorded. Certainly these things are not truth. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. For example, we read in Psalm 14.1, the value or truthfulness of what is said must be considered in the light of its source. All the Bible is not of equal value, but contains the main body of truth and history that God has deemed it necessary that humanity know about. Then there are supposed mistakes and contradictions that arise from a comparison of different accounts of the same events. When we discover minor variation in details between parallel accounts, let us remember that all could be perfectly truthful, while none include all the details reported. Such variations are considered as a proof of individual integrity in witnessing if there is agreement in the essential matters. With this in mind, such problems are not bothersome. Different authors of the Bible have had different purposes in their writings and chose material best suited to their purpose. Another problem involves figurative language so frequently used by Bible writers. This was very common in Bible times and was often used by our Lord. But as we seek to place ourselves in the situation of Bible times and try to understand as much of their environment as possible, understanding of various figures of speech conveys a vital presentation. We certainly should not object to a literal interpretation when only a figurative one may have been intended. The excavation of various writings by archaeologists has given light to many before unknown words and phrases, and certainly future excavations will shed much more light. Others approach the Bible with some particular prejudice and as a consequence find objections. If we are naturalists, and are prejudiced against the supernatural, for example, we are bound to object when the many miraculous events recorded in the Bible are read. Coming to the Bible with an open mind, such problems do not arise. Then there are numerous so-called errors in the Bible relating to scientific discoveries, which are affirmed by men of science and astronomy. Before deciding upon a supposed contradiction, we must be sure of two things, most certainly. We must be sure that the so-called scientific fact contradicted is a proved fact and not a theory which may change by the next generation. Then we must be sure that we have not read into the Bible text something that is not actually there nor intended. These two precautions will slow down or eliminate such objections. While the Bible is not a textbook on science, but on redemption, it nevertheless cannot contain scientific error and be inspired of God. And it is affirmed that it does not when understood in the simplest interpretations. The Word of God has outlived many scientific theories and will continue to do so. 
We also gave consideration to matters of chronology, many of which have been eliminated, as more was learned about the customs of the people and as facts were uncovered by archaeological excavations. Also, the size of various armies and groups of people have given trouble to some, but are illumined by the realization of other facts and customs. The use of round numbers is certainly permissible in the Bible when exact numbers are not important. As to variations in the meanings of words used, this is a weakness of all language. The Bible had to be given in the language of the people and therefore would not escape these problems. However, the context will safeguard the interpretation of words of optional meaning. And thus, as we have faithfully considered the Bible, the Word of God, we are most confident that it is perfectly true that it reveals to us those historical facts and those profound unveilings of truth that God desires the human family to be aware of. We shall continue in our next visit. Our Heavenly Father, with thanksgiving we come to Thee that the Bible thy word has prevailed unto this day, and dost enlighten us on those profound things concerning thy heart and thy willingness to be reconciled to us. In fact, thou hast been reconciled through the death of thy Son, and if men will only repent and exercise faith in this sacrificial death, they may be forgiven and be restored to thy great heart of love, we pray that many may so respond in Jesus' name. Amen.